Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. The Authority of the Word of God. Part 2. James Boyd. Contents. Is Jesus God, the unchanging one, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is Jesus God? If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Matthew chapter 22 verse 45. If we think of the scriptures as a revelation given to us from God who cannot lie, and if we have them as he gave them to us, we cannot give harborage to the notion that the smallest untruth can be found therein, or any statement which, taken in its connection, would be calculated to leave a false impression upon the mind of the reader. Were it possible that an honest seeker after light could be deceived by them, were it possible that they could lead the soul who trusted them as the truth of God into darkness and error? They would prove themselves to be but the corrupt production of the fallen mind of man, and valueless as a guide to the knowledge of God. They would bear witness against themselves as not the offspring of one who cannot lie, but of one who was both a liar and a murderer. And if we think of them as written to the poor and the illiterate and not to the wealthy, the wise, and prudent, we shall not expect them to be full of dark sayings and mysterious theories. Couched in great swelling words, to be understood by none but clever and educated minds. The gospel is preached to the poor, and as far as that which relates to the universal testimony of the grace of God is concerned, nothing could be more simple. True, the deep things of God can only be known by those who have the Spirit, but that is not because they are very learned, nor because they require colossal intellects to grasp their meaning, but because they relate to things which lie outside the circle in which the natural mind of man exercises itself. The scriptures are the only light we have with regard to the knowledge of God, and we must either take them as they are, or reject them altogether. They speak of all the relationships in which man is placed, whether in Adam or in Christ, and dilate upon the responsibilities connected with these relationships in such a way that nothing is overlooked, disregarded, or epitomized. And whether we understand the things of which they speak, or whether we do not, the language in which they are set before us cannot be held to be bewildering nor capable of double meaning. In them the trumpet gives no uncertain sound, and there, without a jar, from pipe and harp breaks forth the glorious music of eternal truth, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 7 to 8. As far as it is necessary, and indeed as far as it is possible for us to know the one in whom we live and move and have our being, we have him placed before us in the written word. If he is not learned there, where can he be learned? Not in the material universe, not in providence, not in the state of this world, for everywhere we turn we are confronted with contradiction. And had we nothing else than these we should be compelled to dwell in darkness and uncertainty. The world is now almost 6,000 years old, and though it has made immense progress in the knowledge of the resources of nature, it has made none in the knowledge of God, indeed. It knows less about him today than it did in its infancy, Romans chapter 1 verses 21 to 25. The history of every testimony committed to man has always been downgrade. The antediluvian, Noahic, Judaic, and Christian dispensations tell the same tale. Departure from the living God, corruption of his truth, darkness and chaos, followed by the intervention of God in judgment, mark each successive dealing of God with men. Nor will any future dispensation be otherwise. Everything will prosper in the hands of Christ, and during his reign there will be no failure in the government of the world, for everything undertaken by him will be fulfilled to the glory and praise of God. But that reign, however beneficent it may be, will not change the hearts of men. For at the close it will be seen that nothing but a leader is necessary to rouse the whole earth into revolt against the authority of the Lord. There is an innate aversion in the human mind to everything that is of God, though, of course, this solemn fact is known only to those in whom the grace of God has wrought. The truth has been persecuted since the world began, and against Christ, who was the embodiment of that truth, the powers of darkness stirred up, and brought into evidence, that aversion in a way hitherto unknown. From the beginning he was God's testimony, and therefore has he ever been the object of attack. 
his atoning work, his miraculous birth, his spotless nature, his real manhood, his deity, his resurrection are openly denied in that which professes his name, and Christendom is at present fast drifting back into heathen darkness. And it is on this account I seek to draw attention to the answer furnished by Scripture to the question at the head of this paper. Is Jesus God? Apart altogether from the answer given by Scripture to this momentous question, one can very easily understand that were one person both God and man, such an one would be, by the very nature of his being. Beyond the understanding of men. Indeed, God himself, apart from incarnation, is beyond our understanding, for the creature never can perfectly comprehend the Creator. It is our privilege and joy to know him in his nature, so that we can say God is love, 1 John chapter 4 verse 16, and this is the highest knowledge the creature can possess. But as to essential deity, it is beyond the ken of man. He dwells in light unapproachable, whom no man has seen, nor is able to see, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 16. We know him in the way in which it has pleased him to declare himself, and that is in his infinite love, but in his essential being, and in the mystery of his wondrous existence, we know nothing. Can know nothing, and need to know nothing. What he has in his grace caused us to know fills our cup of happiness to overflowing. But what must be the mystery of incarnate God? One truly man, born of a woman, advancing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men, Luke chapter 2 verse 52, omniscient, John chapter 2 verses 24 to 25, Luke chapter 11 verse 17, John chapter 16 verse 30, yet limited in knowledge, Mark, the upholder of the universe, Colossians chapter 1 verse 17, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, yet in weakness here, John chapter 4 verse 6, creator, John chapter 1 verse 3, Heb. 1.10, yet taking a place in creation, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. How could such contradictory attributes be reconciled by the finite mind of man, or by the mind of any creature, whoever he may be? But this is just what the scriptures assert as regards Jesus, no one knows the Son, but the Father, Matthew chapter 11 verse 27. And though the reference to this text may be ridiculed as but a refuge for an unreasonable dogma, it is nevertheless the teaching of scripture, and the only conclusion that a reasonable mind can come to regarding such a person. The Father is said to be declared, and that in the very passage which tells us that no one knows the Son, neither knows anyone the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. We are never said not to know the Father, for this knowledge is the portion of even the babes in Christ, 1 John chapter 2 verse 13. But though we may come to the full knowledge of the Son of God, so far as he has been revealed, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13, there are mysteries about his person which are impossible for us to know, hence we have. No one knows the Son, but the Father. Indeed, were this statement absent from the page of inspiration, our reason would compel us to admit what it asserts. And of ourselves we would come to the conclusion that such a person was unknowable by the creature. Seeming contradictions, which are matters of revelation, we can well believe, but not one of them can we understand. Indeed, it is little that we do know perfectly, possibly nothing at all, for our knowledge of the very simplest things is very limited. But if we know that every question that was between us and a holy and righteous God has been gone into and settled to his satisfaction and that we have been brought into new and eternal relationships with God in him who bore the judgment which rested upon us on account of our sins. And if that love of God which was declared in his death has been shed abroad in our hearts, and if we know the Father, and are able to take account of ourselves as the children of God, and confidently look for the coming of Christ to take us to the home he has prepared for us in the Father's house, we shall be very happy. We shall also be very thankful for the revelation he has so graciously given to us. And we shall be careful to approach that revelation with the reverence that springs from the knowledge of the holy character of that love that has made known to us everything that is for our good.
and who has also given to us the Holy Spirit, in order that we may be able to enter into the deep things of God, so far as they are revealed. That Jesus was a man every true Christian will confess, a real man, as truly a man as was Adam or any of his race. A man with spirit, soul, and body. A man so like every other man in Judea that, as he sat by the well of succor, the woman who came to draw water took him to be an ordinary Jew, resting from his journey. And waiting upon someone to come and draw a little water to quench his thirst. But thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, marks him of as very different from all other men, as does also, that holy thing, Luke chapter 1 verse 35, and him, who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Still, that there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, settles the question of his manhood both in humiliation and also glory. Nothing could be more plainly stated than the fact of the existence of Jesus previous to incarnation. He says, I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world, John chapter 16 verse 28, again, the glory which I had with thee before the world was, and, thou loved sent me before the foundation of the world, John chapter 17 verse 5. 24, also, before Abraham was, I am, John chapter 8 verse 58, again in John chapter 6 verse 38, I came down from heaven, also verse 62. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? I might quote many other scriptures on the same subject. But any one of these is quite sufficient to prove the existence of Jesus before he was born into this world. Now what was he before he became man? What say the scriptures as to this? In Philippians chapter 2 the Holy Spirit of God carries us back to the point of departure, when he began that journey of humiliation which ended in the death of the cross. And what was he before he took the initial step upon that downward path? He was, in the form of God. Now, no one who was not God could be in the form of God, for the only other form we know of is that of a servant. A servant should have no will of his own, all his actions proceed from the will of another. But God acts from himself, from his own will, without reference to another. Authority, dominion, and might belong to him. The form of God is incompatible with that of a servant, indeed, the word here is bond slave. Hence, when in the form of God, the act of emptying himself and taking the form of a servant is viewed as proceeding from himself, he emptied himself, taking a bondsman's form. It could not be otherwise. For he was under no other authority or obligation. This is not true of any creature, for the most exalted creature is by the very fact of his creation a servant, and nothing but a servant. But the moment this glorious person takes upon himself the form of a servant obedience characterizes his every act, he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. While in the form of God his every action must proceed from his own will, he could be neither influenced nor controlled by anything external to himself. But when he became a servant everything is changed. His acts are as consistent with the form of a servant as they were with the form of God. For a creature to leave his first estate is to apostatize, but this the son did, for to no one was he responsible. But this emptying of himself was not in any way the renunciation of Godhead, which could not be, but the giving up of the whole position that appertained to Godhead, and the becoming a servant to the Godhead for the Godhead's glory. This was not done by the Father, who remains in his eternal status and position unchanged. It is true of the Son only, who came to do the Father's will, and who did it at all cost to himself. Tested to the very uttermost, his obedience was perfect. He took a servant's form, in order that he might do the will of God, and he did that will so perfectly that, in the judgment of God, no other place than the highest in the universe would he an adequate answer to the work which he accomplished. And this place he has as man and the servant of the Godhead.
John also, in the first chapter of his Gospel, carries us back before incarnation, right into eternity itself, that we may behold one who had no beginning, the Word, who in the beginning was, and was with God. And was God. And God, of course, he must be if he had no beginning. Next, all things were made by him. Then we have, the Word was made flesh. Then John the Baptist's testimony is, he that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He declares the Father. And baptizes with the Holy Ghost. In chapter 2 he turns the water into wine, and thus manifests forth his glory, speaks of raising up the temple of his body when men have destroyed it, and knows what is in man. Chapter 3, he came down from heaven. Chapter 4, he is omniscient, tells the woman of Samaria all that ever she did. Chapter 5, he makes himself equal with God, and must be honored even as the Father is honored. But I need not go over more passages from this gospel. In Colossians we have the same statement made as in John chapter 1. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and in 1 John chapter 5. 20 he is the true God and eternal life, but I will come to his name. His name is Jesus, which means Jehovah the Savior. And the reason he has been given this name is because, he shall save his people, Jehovah's people, from their sins. He is the object of angelic worship, Hebrews chapter 1. He is addressed as God by God upon the throne. He is the Creator, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands, they shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Need I quote more scripture? Surely not, the Word of God presents him as a man, a true, real man, begotten of God, born of the Virgin, Son of God as begotten in time, and servant to the Godhead. But the same word of God presents him as God over all, eternal, in the form of God, acting from himself without respect to any other authority, the creator, preserver, eternal son with the eternal father. Neither his Godhead nor his manhood shall ever be given up. From the standpoint of the creature's finite mind innumerable mysteries and apparent contradictions connect themselves with his person, for, no man knows the son, but the father. But the believing. Subject soul knows very well that in connection with such a person apparent contradictions must exist, and he is prepared for them, for indeed his person is just like his love, it surpasses knowledge. The unchanging one. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. How cheering, refreshing, and establishing it is to be brought into contact with one who is infinite in goodness, grace, righteousness, holiness, and love and who never can be different to that which, at our earliest introduction to him, we found him to be, one upon whom the lapse of ages leaves no mark of change. Such is Jesus, the subject of this epistle, in which the old order, like a dissolving view, melts from before our vision, leaving to fill the scene that which is new and eternal, radiant with the glory of God. And how often has the passage at the head of this paper spoken peace to the soul disquieted by the capricious and changeful nature? of the selfish principles of fallen man who no longer ago than yesterday may have been brimming over with evidences of most tender affection. And today may, in spirit and deportment, have become as cold, cutting, and severe as the January east wind. It has ministered comfort, consolation, and encouragement to thousands perplexed and weary with the ever-varying condition of things with which we are compassed in this world of restlessness, confusion, envy, and falsehood. It presents to the shipwrecked and hopeless mariner an island of peace in the midst of a turbulent and treacherous ocean. It is a shelter for the battered and toil-worn wayfarer, alone and lost in the pathless and storm-swept wilderness. It is an invulnerable citadel, into which the besieged and war-broken may retreat. And thus escape the anguish which is invariably the lot of those who foolishly trust their happiness to the vicissitudes of a world in rebellion against God and agitated by the fell destroyer of the human race.
how good it is to be brought to the knowledge of this changeless Jesus. He came into this world, which was without moral foundations, that man should have a firm rock upon which he might plant the foot of faith, and be assured that amid the crash of everything that seemed stable in the universe, it could not be shaken. He came to illuminate the benighted vision with the gracious light of God, and to warm into life the cold dead human heart with the holy love of God. See him at the well of succor, and hear him speak of the gift of God to a poor sinful creature, for whom no one else had a word of comfort. There he is the giver of the living water, which alone can give satisfaction to the thirsty soul. See him in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Luke chapter 7, the creditor in the midst of his debtors, speaking only of forgiveness. See him at the grave of Lazarus, the resurrection and the life, mingling tears of sympathy with those of the two bereaved women, before his almighty voice awoke the echoes of the dull domain of death and Hades, and called back the dead man to life. See him amid a multitude of publicans and sinners, and hearken to the words of grace which proceed out of his lips, until you hear the throbbing of the heart of God. As he enfolds in the arms of his immortal love a prodigal come back from the far country, naked except for those rags which bore witness of his rebellious and disgraceful career. See him in the temple and synagogue, and in the streets and lanes of the city, and hear him tell in the ear of devil-deceived men and women the grace and love of God. See how he feels for the diseased, the demon-possessed, the blind, and the broken-hearted, until you learn what those mean who say. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. See him amid the gloom of Golgotha, dying for the ungodly, and praying for his murderers, and as you contemplate him, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, may you be able to say, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, Isaiah chapter 53 and then think of him as the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, the deep, deep blessedness of knowing him, learning him in his pathway down here, and knowing that he is just the same blessed, living, lowly, gracious Saviour now that he is on the Father's throne. May both reader and writer get to know him better every day of our pilgrim journey through this world, until we see him face to face in courts of light. But consider the setting of this short, simple, peace-imparting sentence. In verse 7 we are exhorted to remember them who had not have the rule over us, who spoke to us the word of God. They have gone from our midst. Their voices are no longer heard amongst us ministering the living word, but we are to call them to mind, and considering the issue of their conversation we are to imitate their faith. Then in verse 9 we are warned against those who would introduce divers and strange doctrines. Between that needful exhortation and this very wholesome warning we have the brilliant and comforting truth shining like a silver star, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever, whether it be the gospel to the world or ministry to the saints, Christ must ever be the subject, Romans chapter 16 verse 25, Acts chapter 28 verse 31. He is the living word, the spirit of all scripture. It was Christ the apostles preached and taught, and there is nothing else for saint or sinner today, and he never changes. John, writing to the babes, says, Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning, John chapter 2 verse 24. The devil brings in novelties, and the human mind loves them and revels in them. And just because men love them, they flatter themselves that they are parts of the truth, but alas, they are but, sporting themselves with their own deceiving. That which turns away the heart from Christ is a snare of the devil. We are told we must not hold too obstinately to old forms, but must advance with the times, but the whole truth has come to light in Jesus, and there is no change in him. It is affirmed by men of science that signs of decay are visible in some of the heavenly bodies. The sun seems to be giving evidence that he has passed the meridian of his years, the moon is a defunct world, and the earth is in the sere and yellow leaf. 
This is just what scripture tells us in those remarkable words which were addressed to Jesus, when in the sorrow of his soul he drew near to the gates of death, stricken for the transgression of believing sinners, thou, Lord. In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands, they shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, Psalm chapter 102 verses 25 to 27, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 to 12. Peter tells us that the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements melting with fervent heat, and that the earth also and all the works that are therein shall be burned up, but that we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, 2 Peter chapter 3. The nature of the change which will pass over the universe has not been revealed to us, we do not need to know it. We are confident, however, of this, that he who built it at the beginning to serve his purpose, and who in infinite wisdom allowed the enemy to defile it with the stain of sin, is able to cleanse it from the presence of that which is so hateful to him and so ruinous to the creature, and to fill it with light and blessing, and make it the abode of righteousness. To accomplish this, and to set man in new and eternal relationships with God, he laid down his life. The Creator is the Redeemer. He who stooped down to know what human weakness was, and who had his days shortened, is the same one who then, as now, was upholding all things by the word of his power. What creature mind could compass such a thought? No man knows the sun. But not only must the material universe undergo a change, a much greater change must pass over man himself. The old order no longer occupies us, angels, Moses, Aaron, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the covenant, in a word, the whole earthly order disappears before the face of Jesus, and we are exhorted to abandon the shadow for the substance. Types which pass away for realities which abide forever. And for this state of things a change must take place upon us. We are heirs of a kingdom which cannot be moved, but except a man be born again he shall never see it, John chapter 3. Man must have a new nature, as born of God, or perish forever. The wonderful thing about man is that he can be changed. I do not for a moment doubt that God, who knew the end from the beginning, and had his counsels formed with regard to all his works before he put in operation his creative power, so made man that he could be changed in the whole principle of his being. We are not told anything about angels to lead us to suppose such beings capable of being changed. Some of them have fallen away from God, and an opportunity of salvation does not seem to be granted to them. Man is the creature chosen of God in whom his workmanship of grace is to be displayed. What he has wrought as a saviour will be brought to light in ransomed human beings. And what a change he is capable of making in his rebellious and ruined creature. Hear what he says to the headstrong, intractable Simon Peter, When thou wast young, thou girded street thyself, and walk street whither thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest, not John chapter 21 verse 18. And what made that change? Age. Never. As to nature it is ever true, the child is father of the man. That change was wrought in Peter in the school of God, and by him who himself changes not. And consider the insolent overbearing Saul of Tarsus, that proud, self-righteous, Christ-hating Pharisee. Wolfish in his nature, and getting the first taste of blood at the martyrdom of Stephen, he ever after seeks to satiate his ravenous appetite with the slaughter of the sheep of Jesus. Until met on the highway of his merciless career by him before whose subduing power nothing is able to stand. What meekness, gentleness, patience, tenderness, and lowliness were wrought in this striking subject of the grace of God. What ceaseless solicitude for the salvation of the lost. What care for the flock of Christ. What devotedness to that holy name once so hated and persecuted by him. And this wonderful change effected by him who is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. And has not the reader, as well as the writer, come under the changing influence of this changeless person?
From that throat, which was once an open sepulchre is exhaled the perfume of immortal love. That mouth, once, full of cursing and bitterness, is now replete with blessing. That tongue, long accustomed to deceit, now spreads abroad the word of truth and life. Those lips, which once concealed the deadly poison of asps, are now pregnant with life-imparting grace. Those feet, once, swift to shed blood, now, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, run joyfully in the pathways of mercy. A new power, that of the Holy Spirit, has taken possession of the earthen vessel, the members have become instruments of righteousness, the will of God is done, and the soul finds eternal rest. The glory of the Lord, with all its life-giving and attractive power, shines full upon our hitherto benighted hearts, and we become changed into the same image, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. The Spirit of God directs us in the Holy Scriptures. It is there we learn of him who is our life. It is there that heavenly life is portrayed before our renewed minds and hearts, and it is there we are assured that that life is our own. It is seen in perfection in him, unadulterated by the intrusion of sinful flesh, for in him there was no taint of evil, but whatever it may be mingled within our practical ways. By our forgetfulness to keep the judgment of the cross upon our rebellious wills, it is ours by the quickening operation of God, and we have, in God's account, no other life. And all the exhortations, injunctions, and commandments are to give direction to that life, in order that in its own spotless purity it may be reproduced by us in this evil world. And it is just the transcendent qualities of this life that the Apostle labours to bring to light in these Corinthians, to whom he writes this epistle. He would have them think of the poor Jewish saints away in Jerusalem, and not only to think of them, but to send them a thank-offering. Seeing the Gospel had come out from them to the nations of the earth. And to stimulate that which was of God in him Christ is brought forward as the great example. For ye know, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that he through his poverty might be rich. This was not some new doctrine he was bringing under their notice, which they had never before heard of. It was not a thing they did not know, for he tells them they did know it. But though they had heard of it when the gospel had been first proclaimed in their ears, they required to be reminded of it. We are, alas, too much like Pharaoh's chief butler, who forgot the service rendered to him by Joseph, and left him languishing in the prison, while he enjoyed the favour of his royal master. We need to be constantly on the watch lest we forget the one who has so greatly befriended us. We know his grace. We heard of it first in the glad tidings, of which he is the subject, and it was that grace that attracted us to him at the first. And how often since then we have told him, we know the grace that brought thee down, down from that bliss on high, to meet our ruined souls in need, on Calvary's cross to die. Yes, we know it. But let us not forget it. And may it have all its own wondrous power over our poor forgetful minds and hearts, though he was rich think of those riches. Men imagine themselves wealthy when they have grasped a little more than others of the perishable treasures of earth, the possession of which is often their ruin bodily and spiritually. But who could rightly estimate the wealth of the Creator Himself? And all things owe their existence to Jesus. What wealth of glory, dominion, power, and blessing was His? What dignity, majesty, greatness, grandeur, magnificence? What unspeakable happiness, immaculate affections, goodly fellowship, in light unto which no man can approach? There, in the serene, secure, unassailable, unparagoned, and ineffable sweetness of the Father's love, he had his eternal abiding place. That home of infinite and unparalleled delight, where love eternal is met by love eternal, in the infoldment, reciprocity, and intransmutability of its own infinite and deathless nature.
a scene into which no creature curiosity could penetrate, nor imagination call into existence, but best described in the words addressed by the Son to the Father, the glory which I had with thee before the world was, and thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, John chapter 17 verses 5, 24. And yet for our sakes he became poor. And into what depths of poverty did his grace cause him to descend? At his birth he was laid in a manger, while the great people of the earth, who were but the work of his hands, and in addition to that rebels against God, poured noisily and haughtily into the comforts of the inn, where there was no room for him, an early indication that the heart of this great world would be found securely locked against the entrance of this heavenly stranger. Later on he could say that the foxes had holes, and the birds of the air had roosting places, but that he had nowhere to lay his head. There was to be no brightening of his circumstances. From a human standpoint the way before him seemed to darken into impenetrable gloom. The barrenness of desert places, the loneliness of Olivet, the silence of Gethsemane, these all were privileged witnesses of the man of sorrows. Bethany alone sought to make up for the carelessness and base ingratitude of a thankless and hypocritical nation, but the very solitariness and extreme isolation of that sweet and hallowed spot became, on this account, the greatest witness of all to the utter poverty of Jesus, for it was all he had down here. And it was all for our sakes, but the terrible and unparalleled nature of that poverty must draw its grim, terrific folds still more closely around this lonely man. The arid waste of man's indifference to the precious dues of heavenly grace, shed with such lavish hand in word and work upon a crushed and degraded people, must to its utmost boundary be trodden by those weary feet, whose every movement preached to deaf and disdainful ears the gospel of peace. For love, sown with prodigal extravagance, he must reap hatred. The desertion of many of his professed followers he must with sorrow of heart witness. The treachery of one of his most intimate followers, who with hypocritical kiss betrays him to his enemies, he must bear in silence. Another, who professed the greatest devotion to him, he must hear denying him with oaths and curses. The plight of the rest of his poor disciples, like sheep in the presence of the wolf, beats in upon his breaking heart with merciless severity. He gives his back to the smiters, and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, and he hides not his face from shame and spitting. And it was all for our sakes. But the depths of poverty that were yet to be explored by this divine and blameless victim open up before his soul with a terror that infinitely excels all that the imagination of man has ever pictured. A horror beyond all human thought appalling confronts this lonely sufferer. Nailed to a gibbet, numbered with transgressors, surrounded by the rude Roman soldiery, his cross girt about by a mocking, insulting, blaspheming, howling rabble, he looks for some to take compassion, and finding none, he turns to God. And by him he is abandoned. Horror heaps itself upon horror, but this, the greatest horror of all, overtakes him in the midst of his deep distress and anguish of soul. This is the climax of that poverty which began in the manger at Bethlehem. Here the lowest rung in this fearful ladder of humiliation is reached. Here the bottomless is bottomed. Poverty reaches its limit, a limit without a limit. Betrayal, desertion, denial, ingratitude, reproach, spend their utmost and most merciless fury against the Son of God. In the barren, weary, wintry waste of a God-hating world, impaled upon a gibbet, without a disciple, without a sympathizer, without a friend. In the unutterable loneliness of abandonment by earth and heaven and with a heart broken by reproach, the storm of divine wrath against sin beats with infinite power upon his defenseless and thorn-crowned head. And it was all for our sakes, that ye through his poverty might be rich. This was the cause of his wondrous journey from Bethlehem to Golgotha, from the manger to the gibbet. The grace of his heart was the fount from which flowed forth all this down-stooping, this self-forgetfulness, this self-abnegation, this renunciation of uncountable riches, this self-abasement, this unmurmuring acceptation of the servant's pathway. With all that was involved in it, this submission to the cross, the wrath, the judgment due to sin. 
it was all undertaken, and patiently borne, that we through his poverty might be rid. And oh, what infinite wealth has come to us through his great poverty! We have been enriched in righteousness, in eternal life, in holiness, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, in sonship, in the possession of all things, in union with Christ, in fellowship with the Father, and with his Son Jesus Christ, and in the hour of his coming again to find our eternal home with him in the Father's house, where we shall see him as he is, and be like him, to the eternal satisfaction and delight, not only of our hearts, but of the heart of the Father and the Son. But in Philippians this grace of the Lord Jesus is presented in another way. It is not what he has done for our sakes, but for the Godhead glory, but with a similar object in view is it brought to our notice, that is, as our great example. Let this mind be in you. What mind? The mind that was in Christ Jesus. The grace that came to light in him down here is to be a mighty power in our souls, reproducing him in this world out of which he has been rejected. He was full of grace and truth, and of his fullness all believers have received. Hence that grace is to give character to our lives down here. It is to be operative in our soul. How has it come to light in him as presented here? This is most beautifully brought under our notice. Who being in the form of God. Here, first of all, we are privileged to contemplate him in the outward position and semblance of God, the embodiment of might, authority, majesty, supremacy, and everything else that belongs to God. Yet not counting this a position to maintain at all costs, but necessity having arisen for the intervention of one mighty enough to undertake a work for the glory of the Godhead, he divests himself of this outward form and takes the form of a servant. Here he stands in opposition to the first and fallen head of the human race, who, though created by God and placed as his servant in a very exalted position, grasped at divinity, and fell headlong under the power of death. Jesus when in the form of God empties himself, taking a bondsman's form, taking his place in the likeness of men. And this is the mind that is to take possession of us. Then, having been found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself, becoming obedient unto death, and that too, the death of the cross. When he took the form of a servant there was no unreality about it. When he was in the form of man he was just as truly a servant, as when in the form of God he was truly master. And as obedience, unquestioning, uncomplaining obedience, is what is due from every servant, so was he obedient to God in all relations of life. He says, I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, John chapter 6 verse 38. And this he did perfectly without any respect for the consequences to himself. He uttered no word but that which was given him from the Father. He did no work but that which the Father gave him to do. He went nowhere but at the express command of the Father, John chapter 3 verse 34, John chapter 12 verse 49, John chapter 10 verse 32, and John chapter 6 verse 57. In him I learn man's true place as set in intelligent relationship with God. Humility of mind, and unqualified obedience to God, regardless of where the path, marked out by God for my feet to tread, may lead to. The will of God is to be done irrespective of the consequences. There must be no murmuring, no complaining. We are not a reason why we are led in certain directions, nor why we have been plunged into circumstances that are both difficult and painful. All we require to be assured of is, that these things are God's will for us. The issues are entirely his concern. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In Corinthians what he did is said to have been all for our sakes. Here in Philippians it is all for the sake of the Godhead. But, as I have already intimated, we learn in both cases the effect God would have this grace produce in us, which came so perfectly to light in him. I learn in Philippians that I am to place myself at the disposal of God, and to tread the path he has marked out for my feet, regardless of where it may lead, and in Corinthians the saints are under God, to be everything to me, and for them I am to lay down my life. 
but for all this we must draw from the inexhaustible supply of grace that is found in himself. In the answer of God to this self-sacrificing life of Jesus we learn his infinite appreciation of it. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here we have his estimate of the devoted, faithful, self-sacrificing spirit in which that work was undertaken. And carried through to the finish, without the slightest semblance of regret that it had been undertaken, or of failure in the accomplishment of it. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 22. What an example for us the Son of God is. May we keep our eyes steadily fixed upon him, and may we be ready at all times to pass unsparing judgment upon the slightest departure from the path marked out for us. Whether that path be with reference to obedience to God, or love to his people. These are difficult days, and to be here for his pleasure we require to be, strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus.